if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to 1 Samuel, chapter 1. First of all, I was thinking about the title of this sermon, and I want to make sure you got the, the emphasis right. It's not, we have a king who cares. <laughs> we have a king who cares about us. So anyways... <laughs> About a year ago, I got a harebrained idea to take the church through two books of the Bible intermittently, uh, the book of Acts, and then the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, and I thought we'd cover it in thematic parts. So last fall, we finished our first part of Acts, and then we did an Advent series, and now we're going to start our part one of 1st Samuel. We did eight chapters in Acts. But we're going to go through 11 chapters in 1 Samuel for our first part. But I'm actually expecting to take either the same amount of time, if not less time. Because a lot of my sermons are just going to be through the entire chapter. And don't worry, they won't be longer sermons. (laughs) But um, in fact, we're covering the entire first chapter today. That, coupled with a little bit of introductory material about 1 Samuel... So we do have a lot to cover, and I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the Word of God. We'll read all this together if you're able to stand for 28 verses. Uh, Don't worry, I'm not taking notes if you sit down. (laughs) We read, There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerahom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zeph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship, to, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion. He gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she bowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. 
And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went, oh, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and, to, and worshipped the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up, went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you inspired the writing of these words. We thank you that you still use them to instruct our lives. And we pray that as we study this today, that we would hear what it is you wish to say to us with these words. Father, we thank you that we do have a king, and his name is Jesus. And we thank you that that king is sovereign and in control. We thank you that he's still a king who cares for us today as well. So we ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Christ and King. Amen. 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 You may be seated. We have a king. <laughs> this world has a king. Every single nation's leader is accountable to this king. Every single heart, believing or not, receptive to this king or not, affirming and acknowledging of this king or not, is answerable to this king. Years after the events of Samuel, in fact, after the kingdom of Israel was conquered by Babylon, one foreign, pagan, non-Jewish king would realize this, and he declares... At the end of day, the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and prayed and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We have a king. And when the world hears that we have a king, sometimes the world acts like King Herod, like we talked about last week, and they become hostile. Sometimes the presence of a sovereign that is over all, in all, and works through all, rubs off on people the wrong way. 
And they grow proud, angry, arrogant, and then oddly enough, it leaves people ignorant <laughs> of this king. Other times, for those who profess and confess the sovereign, a relationship is born between the king and citizens, and we find the beautiful reality that our king has said that he wants to become our friend. The book of First Samuel is actually the first part of what historically was a four-volume book, encompassing the books of Samuel and the books of the kings, all of which together were called the book of the kingdoms. Generally speaking, First Samuel covers the kingdom of Saul, Second Samuel covers the kingdom of David. And I also want you to see, though, that theologically speaking, First Samuel and King Saul exemplifies how a proud king interacts with the king of kings, and Second Samuel and King David is how a humble king interacts with the king of kings. We just read the first chapter, and you may have noticed there's no byline in the first chapter of First Samuel. The books are anonymous in authorship, internally speaking. Nowhere in the book will you find, by the way, so-and-so here is writing. Most people believe that the reign of David began near the end of the 11th century B.C., and so we look back to Samuel being born around the beginning of the 11th century B.C. Some people look to the end of First Chronicles, chapter 29, and see a reference to First and Second Samuel, possibly in these verses from First Chronicles 29, which says, Now the acts of King David from the first to the last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer, with accounts of all his rule and his might, and of the circumstances that came upon him and upon Israel and upon all the kingdoms of the countries. And so some say, well, maybe these verses are referring to who wrote First and Second Samuel and so forth. They would say, Samuel probably wrote up to his death in 1 Samuel 25, unless if he was able to look after his death, and then uh, so forth, Nathan the prophet, and then Gad. Quick four themes that we're going to go through, and then we'll start trekking through our passage today. Four themes in the book of 1 Samuel you're going to find. Theme of leadership. Samuel is the last judge. Saul and David are kings. You're also going to find the theme of God's sovereignty, his working in the hearts of Hannah, Samuel, Saul, and David to bring about his desires. Samuel, the book of Samuel also portrays really vividly sin's consequences, the consequence of the sins of the priests of Eli or, or the, his sons or the sins of Samuel's sons or the sins of King Saul. Or of King David, they all have really big consequences. And finally, we're going to see the theme of God's covenant. His covenant with Israel, his covenant with his people, his covenant with David. But where we come to in 1 Samuel chapter 1, is actually a, a beginning to remind us of the book that Samuel is in and the books prior to Samuel. So it's in the Bible, and it reminds us of the books prior to Samuel. We see again there was a certain man of Ramatham Zotham of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zeph. If you need more names for kids, there you go. <laughs> An Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, 
and the name of the other was Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This phrase here, there was a certain man, coupled with a story about a husband and a barren wife, closely resembles another story in the Bible found in Judges chapter 13. In Judges 13, we read about the birth of a judge named Samson. You know Samson, he's kind of an anti-hero. You really don't open up Judges 13 and tell your kids, follow this guy's leading. He's a Nazarite, he's the guy with the long hair, and he's chasing around women he shouldn't chase. He kills a bunch of Philistines. In Judges 13, verse 2, we read of Samson's parents, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Sounds familiar. And here in 1 Samuel, we're also introduced to a guy named Elkanah. And then I just had to read through all those names. I read them fast, loud, and confident, and only Dean knew whenever I wasn't pronouncing them right. <laughs> but uh, the fact that there is a genealogy listed suggests that he was probably a person of pedigree. No doubt that the people reading 1 Samuel originally would say, Oh, I know that guy. He was probably kind of famous, or at least he was a big name. The author wants us to know that Samuel is another judge. In fact, he will be the last judge. And though the barren woman resembles Samson's mother, we also know, biblically speaking, it resembles many mothers throughout scriptures that end up having well-known babies used by God. Abram's wife Sarai was barren until she had the promised Isaac. Before having Jacob and Esau, Genesis 15:21 tells us that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. Jacob's favored wife, Rachel, was barren before she had a child. <clears throat> we know Elizabeth in the New Testament was old and barren before having John the Baptist. And so, biblically speaking, barren women, even a considerable amount of history before Samuel here, points to this fact that God can do things with barren women where barren women have no hope. In fact, God often brings people of greatness from barren women. There is another book prior to Samuel, though, this might remind us of. Um, in your Bibles today, if you go back one page, you see the book of Ruth. In the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, if you go back before 1 Samuel, it goes straight to Judges. Well, the reason we put Ruth there is because we realize Ruth is also taking place in the time of the Judges. And what does the book of Ruth tell us? Generally, it gives us a story of an Israelite family who through one woman's grief and faith, a child is born who will be instrumental in leading Israel's history. So this is similar to the birth of Samuel. The remainder of the first chapter of Samuel is a focus on Hannah, her barrenness, and God redeeming that. One other thing, though. Elkanah had two wives. Uh, Genesis 2, 18-25 tells us God's intent for creation was one man and one woman, becoming one flesh, not three becoming one flesh. <laughs> we know that throughout the Old Testament this seemed to be ignored many times by God's people. It could be that like Abraham before him, Elkanah married Hannah, which happens to be his favorite, but then he's receiving those sons to continue on his legacy, so he marries Penina. And we will come to discover that Hannah is devastated that she can't bear any children. But already the author is about to give us foreshadows of hope. 
And I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 3, but we'll read verses 3 through 7 now. It says, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? The author here in verse 3 gives God a title for the first time in the entire Bible. This title is given. The Lord of Hosts. You have the, the word Lord in small caps, likely in your Bible, means that the actual word was Yahweh, his name, simply means I am who I am, or the eternally existing one he is. And then of hosts, talking about all the armies, all the people, all the everything that is at God's disposal. In other words, these two words, the author is saying that Elkanah went to make sacrifices to the eternally existing God and the sovereign over the entire universe who has everything, all resources at his both, both his beck and call. That he is that sovereign. He is that powerful. In fact, on your outlines, I'm not going to put it up here, but I'm telling you right now, the next word is sovereign. And I couldn't put it up here because I need the screen right away. So again, sovereign, does that word on your outline, I even put an S at the beginning of your blank. So, Elkanah is going to Shiloh. This is about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this time in history was really not an important, time, uh, important city for the Israelites. When Joshua led the conquest, Joshua 18 tells us that the Israelites congregated at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting, uh, the tabernacle there, when they divided the land among the tribes. Judges 21.19 tells us that even throughout the time of the judges, nearing the judges leading up to Samuel, that a yearly feast was held there. And then God, while prophesying in Jeremiah 7, seems to refer to Shiloh as an early important place of his presence. And so it seems that Shiloh, by Samuel's time, had become a rather permanent place, probably still just the tabernacle or the tent, but it nevertheless seemed to be fixed at Shiloh. And we have this family making this trek to Shiloh. It could be the yearly feast that was talked about in Judges. It could be one of the three annual pilgrim feasts that the law laid out in Israel's history. But also what was laid out in the law was that during sacrifices, especially Thanksgiving sacrifices or the fellowship offering, the offerer would be able to eat some of the portions that he came to offer. So some of what he offers is sacrificed to God, some is given to the priests, and then some is eaten by the offerer. And so kind of in a, a Jacob and Rachel sort of way, um, we're told that because Elkanah loved Hannah, he would give a double portion to her. I was thinking about that. That's kind of an awkward meal, right? 
I mean, here's Fanina, and here's her kids. Meanwhile, Elkanah's just dumping loads and loads of food in front of Hannah. Eat, why are you upset? Right? I'm not upset that you're not having kids. I just love you for you. You're not my child-rearing wife. You're my wife that I married because I love. Very romantic stuff, I'm sure. Just not picking up the grief that Hannah's going through. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Penina is, is taking after Hagar and the situation with Abraham and Sarai. You remember that? Why are you so upset, Hannah? Hey, if you're too hungry, one of my many children would be happy to take some of that food off your plate. Just a dysfunctional situation. But in this dysfunctional situation is a sovereign God. A sovereign God that Elkanah and his family are trying to worship and abide by the law. A sovereign God that verse 5 tells us had closed Hannah's womb. Now this wording is very important and it's very easy to misunderstand. When the author reveals that the sovereign Lord closed Hannah's womb, it's not to be meant read as somehow divine punishment. As in, here is Hannah who wants a baby, but mean old sovereign God, he closed it because Hannah's been a bad girl. Rather, what we are supposed to see is that while the situation looks dismal, Hannah wants a kid, Penina's taunting her, and Elkanah is, is failing at comforting her. Here is God who is sovereign and has the resources to do anything. He is the one aware and who has kept her from having a baby, but at the same time, he is the hope, because he's the only one who has the resources to bring a baby. Does that make sense? Which is what he will do. We read on in verses 9 through 18, says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And again, it seems like Shiloh while not having the temple that Jerusalem has, seems to have a more permanent or fixed tabernacle. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So that sounds like a Nazarite vow, that's like the one that Samson had, only Nazarite vows were usually just for a time. But Hannah is saying to God here, who will be yours all his life? Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So we were told earlier in the chapter that this was a common thing 
year after year, coming to these mills in Shiloh, weeping, not eating, Penina's kids just getting older. One year after the mill, likely after Elkanah and maybe his family had already been to the tabernacle earlier and made the sacrifices, maybe came back to eat. And as the fellowship continues wherever Elkanah and his family are staying, Hannah seems to come back to the temple alone. The agony that she has, deeply distressed, here in verse 10, is actually the same words to use to describe Naomi in the book of Ruth when she returns to Bethlehem without any husband or sons and she just has a Moabite daughter-in-law in tow. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. And that's the same word for Hannah here. She is bitter of soul. But with her bitterness and with her deep distress and with her agony, having come from suffering through another meal, not eating, although probably being force-fed, no doubt, big servings of taunts and teases from Penina, mocking her and her barren body, with all of that, she comes to the Lord of hosts, that term. She comes to the sovereign God with infinite resources and the power to do anything that he pleases. She comes weeping bitterly, being real. <laughs> Coming to a temple that no doubt sees Ritualized pomp and circumstance, you know, routines they had to go through, no doubt, sometimes true and genuine. I'm not saying that simply because they did the same things, they didn't mean it. But she comes weeping bitterly and lays it out. If you will remember me, she says to the sovereign God, if you will look at me, if you will count me among your people, she asks for a son. Now, I really, I want you to hear this because this is faith. In fact, verse 11 tells us that Hannah vows to dedicate Samuel to the Lord. This is kind of like a, a performative, it's, it's almost as if it's done in Hannah's mind. It's the preparing the fields for rain when no rain is on the forecast. Hannah wants a son and expects a son so she can give that son back to God. This reveals that Hannah does not worship a God that she calls Sovereign, but then fails to grasp that she that he truly is. Rather, she is bringing her affliction to the Lord because she realizes that the Lord can touch the areas of our lives where a misguided comforter of a husband cannot, where perhaps others might turn to comfort foods or drinks or habits. She turns to God. Why? Because we have a king who cares, friends. We have a king who cares, and I want you to hear this, because this is where I'm at sometimes, if I'm perfectly honest with you. God's more concerned about all the times I messed up than he is concerned about my emotional aches, pains, and concerns. When the truth of the matter is, is he came, he went, he bled, and he died on the cross for my sins because he loves me. If I think he loves me enough to die for me, but he doesn't love me enough to hear the times I come weeping bitterly to him because I still have sin at times, then I don't know if I know my God. We have a king who cares. We have a, a king who is listening to Hannah here weeping bitterly. He's not some high, mighty, distant, indifferent dictator who says, well, I'm sovereign, I closed your womb, I've made my decree, don't question my decisions, Hannah, how dare you? Rather, the amazing reality is this right here, that here is suffering, crying, bitter Hannah being real before the sovereign God, 
And the sovereign God is listening. The sovereign God cares. Hannah knows that. She's before him weeping bitterly and crying so much that the priest thinks that she's drunk. (laughs) One of my study Bibles suggested this, that this could be a bit unsettling, that the priest Eli's first conclusion is that Hannah is drunk. As Here's what it might suggest, that Eli is a little unfamiliar with genuine, heartfelt, fervent prayer. (laughs) His first conclusion is that Hannah is drunk. It might make us wonder if Eli never saw genuine, fervent prayer or never did it himself. Which really couldn't be hard to fathom. As we know, the time of the judges was a time of mass rebellion and backsliding, generally speaking, for the Israelites. We know Eli's sons, we will hear in a chapter, aren't at all righteous people. So while we can't pinpoint Eli's spiritual life, it makes us wonder if he thinks Hannah's drunk, maybe he's not familiar at all with the kind of prayer that Hannah is doing. Hannah says in verse 15, I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Echoing what the author says in verse 12, saying that she was praying before the Lord. One commentator would differentiate for us the difference between praying to the Lord, which gives us a direction where one's prayers might be going. But here is Hannah praying before the Lord. And the word before here is actually the Hebrew word for face. Praying in the face of God. Praying before the Lord. Pouring out one's soul here is really an experiential prayer. (laughs) Not merely just words sent to the Lord. It's like the difference between making your order at the drive-thru window or sitting down face-to-face with a friend and having a good long talk. you hear the difference in that? What's interesting is when Eli blesses her and says, May God grant your petition, what do we read? Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. See, she went from bitterly distressed to peace, but all in the same circumstances. That's what prayer can do. That's what God can do. That Just giving hope. <laughs> Don't underestimate talking to the sovereign God, the king who cares. Hannah had an audience with the Lord, and you and I know that her company wasn't the best. It was messy, crying, bitter, weeping, lamenting, but just the very presence of him brought her out of distress and into peace with the exact same circumstances. Any of you ever experienced this? Maybe maybe on a, a daily basis, if your situation is like Hannah and, and you have things you don't have control over. Maybe it's a, a loved one straying from God, Maybe it's a health issue that a simple hospital visit or a pill cannot fix. Maybe it's a relationship that can't be healed overnight. But knowing that you have a king who does care and bringing it to God actually somehow, as if by miracle, moves you from the deep distress you come to him in into peace, into light at the end of the tunnel. See, friends, God hasn't said yes here. She's able to leave the temple and eat. She's able to go back to her lodgings with Panina, you know, oh, welcome back, Hannah. I just laid the baby down to rest, and now i got to read the book to the older baby, and my wonderful daughter is doing dishes. She's such a great helper. And then, you know, 
She passes by Elkanah. You look better, Hannah. Here, have some dessert. <laughs> I just love you for you. And, you know, you're not for kids. I love Penina. I have Penina for that. She's able to go back into that setting and experience the peace that only the sovereign God can give in a situation. That's a promise for you and me. See, I wonder if, if some of you think that this is the problem, where I'm at. <laughs> I wonder if a lot of us here still have that tendency to think that running away is a viable solution. I remember my ninth grade year, a freshman in high school. It was really my most hated year. There was just changes in me personally. I was a quiet person struggling to find my identity. I was a really big guy entering high school. And I had a crush on a gal actually in the same grade as Christy, just not Christy. So I, I had the, the right grade, wrong girl, so I was getting there. But even so, shy, and the gal I did have a crush on was not a Christian. A lot of my close friends in my class had either moved away or they flunked. And so when I went from middle to high school, I had to find new friends. The summer before my ninth grade school year, my family and I visited Georgia to see a lot of my dad's uh, side of the family. I had to be reintroduced to cousins I hadn't seen since I was a toddler, so I was getting to know them again for the first time, actually. And I remember looking at towns around Georgia, and, and my dad was a postman, and I would say, Dad, you could be a postmaster here. Dad, you could, you know, just looking for possible places for my dad's employment. And I remember sitting in the parking lot of Valley View Nazarene one day after church, Dad and the siblings still inside talking to people, and my mom and I were in the car, and I was just going through every possible solution that wouldn't land me back in Kamei High School. <laughs> Dad can get a job in this place in Georgia. I'll start going to the Christian Bible Academy in Kamei. But the problem wasn't Kamei High School. <laughs> All my problems wouldn't go away with going to a different place. We think that because where we experience our problems happens to be where we do life, oddly enough. But I just described a lot of problems I would have anywhere. Needing new friends, being shy in new surroundings. God is able to make our proverbial Kamei High School a place of peace, not distress, because of the work he does in us, not in our circumstances. Do you hear that? Running away, a change of places, cannot cure what's inside us. Furthermore, Hannah's hope is not ill-founded. Her resting her hopes on the sovereign God is not a bad move. In fact, it's probably the best move, and it's often an overlooked move, I think, of both believers and non-believers alike. Let's look at the, the latter half of this chapter and finish the story out. Verses, beginning with verse 19, they, referring to Elkanah and his entire family, rose early in the morning, so I'm assuming the morning after Hannah had gone to the temple alone to pray, and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. We'll pause for a second. There's lots of debate about the etymology of Samuel's name. One of my commentators, who happens to be also a linguistics professor, <laughs> prefers the interpretation that Samuel literally means the name is God. As in Samuel is under God's ownership, he belongs to God, which is what Hannah said she would do concerning Samuel anyways. Verse 21, 
The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. There is an apocryphal book called the book of Second Maccabees, and it records an Israelite mother telling her son that he wasn't weaned until three years. So that could have been the average time we don't know of Israelite children being weaned. That could have been the case for Samuel. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with the three-year-old bull. Some manuscripts actually say three bulls here, which might be reflected in your translation. An ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. She said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. So another phrase that really merits our attention before we misinterpret it is in verse 19 where we read that the Lord remembered Hannah after Elkanah knew her. So the Hebrew word for remember is pretty much the same counterpart to how we use the word remember in English. But when this word is used like this, especially with God and with action to follow, remember is not just simply recalling to mind or thinking about someone, but it's also to act on their behalf. Um, that's, uh, that's not another up here outline entry. If you have an outline, the word acting is the next blank. And so I will show, tell you about that. But I found a reason to bring the message in. Because the message actually does a good job. Eugene Peterson writes, God began making the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. That's the kind of remembering going on here. The Lord had closed her womb, and now the Lord was opening her womb because the Lord is sovereign, and the Lord is king, and we have a king who cares. Now I suppose we can look at this a few ways. Some of us might minimize the personal care that the Lord has had for Hannah while considering Samuel. They might say, well, Samuel has quite the important role to play in the formation of the kingdom, so of course he's going to come. He was supposed to come. <laughs> and in doing this, one can overlook the reality that the sovereign Lord has at his disposal anyone and everyone to bring Samuel but the Sovereign Lord brings Samuel through a faithful, grieving, want-to-be mother. Hannah is blessed to not only have her prayer answered, but to have it answered with the likes of Samuel. See, when Samuel is born, Hannah maintains her vow. Her faith in the King of Kings is backed up by her works. <laughs> Seems like James talks about that in the New Testament. Do you think it was hard for Hannah... Ridiculed by Penina, comforted and, comforted and pitied by Elkanah to give up the child she'd wanted for so long? Would Penina move from just taunting her about the child she didn't have to see, oh, I, I see your child really meant a, long, a lot to you, Hannah. Uh, how hard it must be to raise him. Oh, wait, he's not here. But for Hannah, 
Her walk with God isn't moved or affected so much by others. Her faithfulness to maintain and hold her word and her integrity isn't stymied by her own desires or the chiming in of others. But rather, here is a gal who not only prayed to the Lord, but she prayed before the Lord. Here is a gal who poured out her heart to the Lord because she trusted she has a king who cares. Her trust wasn't misplaced, but it was well-placed. And when the Lord answered her, she responded, showing that she wasn't just spouting off words as if she had a stick and she was trying to whack a pinata to get it to drop candy. But rather, she had a conversation with the Lord and understanding with him, and she followed through. Friends, in the time of the judges, sometimes there are simple, devout, real, salt, and light, righteous people that just stand out among the crowd. In a time where, quote, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, there, there are Boazes who take on Naomi's and Ruth's, and then there are Hannah's that fervently pray and have a true relationship with the Lord and truly trust him. First, uh, when the author opens up 1 Samuel, he, he gives us a character that graces its first pages and fades behind as her son Samuel comes up. But Hannah reminds us that we have a king who cares. We have a king who is Lord Yahweh, the one true God revealed in the Bible, the eternally existing one, the one who ultimately is going to bring about the Savior of all people in the world. And we have the Lord of hosts, who has hosts of angels, people, places, and power. Because he is sovereign, and he closes and open wombs, and he cares. Which means, or begs the question, why wouldn't you bring your petitions to him? So I have a challenge for you this week. I challenge you to have a Hannah moment with the king. It'll be hard for some of you. For others of you, this chapter is so familiar because you're here quite often. I'm glad. See, I wonder if, like Hannah, you've been coming back to church so often with the same story. Hannah had attended Shiloh with her husband and with her, his other wife year after year, we were told, the one time she finally brought it to the Lord. I wonder if some of you need to have that one time. <laughs> The Lord knows your problem already, no doubt knowing the hearts of people, and he knew what Hannah was going to bring to his attention, but the Lord happens to want to be personal with us. Some of you might be like me, and it can so easily become an emotionless religion. Sometimes we get passionate about truth, and we'll defend our hills that we like to die on, but get emotional with God with a conversation, pretend like he, pretend like he cares about a problem that I have? Yes. <laughs> Because at the end of the day, the king that all kings answer to, the king that all people will either love or hate, submit and yield to or surrender to, the king who tells the sun to go down and come up, the king who knows all past, present, and future, the king who breathed the universe into existence, the king who is over all, in all, and works through all, is a king that happens to care for you in a very real, familiar, and personal way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm always amazed as we look into the history of your people in a time like the time of the judges where some of us think we need to have all of our 
T's crossed and all of our I's dotted and understand the Bible front, back, and center. Here's a simple woman who comes to you with great pain and you bless her because you love her and you care for her. Father, she didn't research the Bible and she didn't talk to other people. I'm sure she just had a burden on her heart and she trusted that you would listen because she knew you. Father, help us to know you in this way, to be willing to come to you with our own pains, our own emotional heartaches. Father, help us to not be so proud that we can't humble ourselves before you. But Father, help us to be willing to to trust that you do care, that that's the great story of the gospel, that the great God of the universe, the only one who ever existed, cares for us in such a personal way. Father, I pray that this truth would touch not only our hearts, but the the hearts of the people we come into contact with, that we we would know that we can share with them that you may not know God, but God knows you and he cares for you. So, Father, I pray that you would be with us throughout this next week. Help us to walk in your way. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.